Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series, featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag FashionCulture. Zandra Rhodes is a fashion and textile trailblazer. She's celebrating 50 years of working in fashion. Uh, she's influenced the work of many contemporary labels like Mary Catransu and uh, Alice Temperley. She's just written another book, really beautiful book, which honors the centrality of textile design in her work while exploring all of the versatility of her imagination throughout her long career. She's going to be interviewed tonight by Fern Malice, who's former senior VP of IMG Fashion, former executive director of the CFDA, an accomplished interviewer and public speaker. We also want to thank Dakota Scopatello, who's been the project manager of the book and the evening. So won't you join me, please, in welcoming Fern and Zandra. On my very first trip to London, after I graduated from college, I was a shopaholic, because I was always interested in fashion. And I was buying things at Biba and Mary Quant and Tuffin and Fall. Um, and the Tuffin and Fall probably were prints that Zandra designed for them. And I bought two Ossie Clark dresses, which, uh, with Cecilia Burtwell prints, which I could kill myself for giving all of this away and not having any of it anymore. Not that any of it would fit me. but. Um, those were the good old London days. I'd never owned a Zandra Rhodes dress. They were a little out of my price range and a little bit you know, out of my, my range. Um, but I had this dream always that I was gonna get one of the, almost some of that you've seen in the, in the video, white one, the layered white on white with the little pearls dangling on the layers of chiffon. And that was gonna be my wedding dress when that occasion occurred. Well, I haven't been married. <laughs> So I don't have so the dress. It still occur. I don't have the dress, but I'm, you know, hope springs eternal. When it happens, I'm calling Zandra. Um, so, you know, but better than getting that dress all those years ago, we've become friends, and that's really more important. Um, three years ago, Zandra and I also shared a marvelous experience together, crossing the Atlantic on the Queen Mary, um, and it, it was, was the first one, wasn't it? It was amazing, and it was the first. Uh, Fashion Week crossing that they now do. So we left from Southampton, England, and it took a week to get here, and we disembarked in Brooklyn on the very first day of Fashion Week. Um, and it was pretty special, right? It was great fun doing the whole thing, yes. Yeah, it was great fun. We'll talk about that in, in, in a bit too. And during that trip, because one of the things Zandra does so well is beautiful watercolors and illustrations, and she painted for me um, a couple of watercolors that are framed in my office of the ship just as we were underneath the Verrazano Bridge at dawn, arriving in New York with the Statue of Liberty as the sun was coming up. That's right. I did that at 4 o'clock in the morning. That was really beautiful. <laughs> okay, but here we are talking about 50 years in fashion, a 50-year career. Um, that's quite a feat. And the opening spread in Zandra's book... And I will let her talk, don't worry. It's not all going to be me talking about this. But 
The opening spread in the book is a photo shot for British Vogue in 2006 by Mario Testino. Zandra is the only woman in the middle of Paul Smith, Manola Blahnik, Philip Tracy, Stephen Jones, Roland Murray, Jasper Conran, and Hussein Shalayan. They were dubbed in that picture and in that magazine the Style Council. And I uh, dare I say they still are. Susie Menkes wrote in the book, in the foreword, with shocking pink hair and dresses decorated punk style with safety pins, Zandra burst into the fashion era that was named for new energy, swinging London. Her dramatic shows in the 70s were a template for fashion as theater and entertainment. But behind the wild scenes and the torn seams, the designer was an exceptional creator whose inventive prints followed the contours of the body in a unique way. Um, our good friend Iris Apfel also wrote in the book, in a preface. She said, to make it in this world, you must know how to follow your gut. There's no roadmap to style. Zandra's designs, like her bold and vibrant attire, knocked poised English society straight into the future. And the beauty of Zandra is that she quite literally wears her emotions on her sleeves. She just does what feels right to her and wears whatever makes her feel happy. In a world that tells you to sit down, shut up, and fit in, Zandra was born to stand out. And Zandra also, Mary Lou Luther pointed out that she is the first designer who really brought the street to the runway. Uh, way back in London with her um, conceptual chic collection. And that was before Vivian Westwood did it and she did safety pins and holes way before Johnny Versace did it. Um, and Zandra has said, I supply fantasy for people and I can't imagine fantasy will ever go out of people's lives. And that fantasy has enabled her to dress clients as diverse as Diana, the Princess of Wales, Jackie Onassis, Elizabeth Taylor, Freddie Mercury, Donna Summer, Diana Ross, Debbie Harry, Her Royal Highness Princess Michael of Kent, Paris Hilton, Sarah Jessica Parker, Naomi Campbell, Helen Mirren, Kate Maw, and Kate Moss, not a shrinking violet among them. Zandra was made a commander of the British Empire. She has nine honorary doctorates from the universities in the US and the UK. She's chancellor of the University of Creative Arts and was named a dame on the Queen's Honors List. And staying relevant is not an issue for her. When Pier Paolo uh, Piccioli of Maison Valentino chose her to create design textiles for his spring-summer 2017 and first collection on his own, she reinterpreted the Hermannius Bosch painting, The Garden of Earthly Delights, which was done in 1490 to 1500. And he said, I still remember the emotion of watching her first sketches. I could not have asked for a more vibrant and unconventional wisdom and vision. I was astonished by her talent for combining pictorial and pop symbols, such as flames, hearts, lipsticks, and thunderbolts in shades of red and pink. He said meeting Zandra meant facing the beauty of revolutionary artists. She's incredibly strong and kind at the same time, and she's a good friend and I love her. And I couldn't say it better myself. So, congratulations on the book. It's done in five decades, the way it's broken out. Um, was there anything in looking back at the book now that you would have done differently in your career, would, have, would like to do over? Um, I never really look at things like that because I think all the time it's a case of, um, as, as so many people go by the wayside, and I'm lucky that I haven't, so really, it's a case of always hoping that you can come up with an idea or a reinterpretation 
or something that's relevant and, and hope that that's going to apply to your customer base, really. Has your customer base changed a lot through the years? Um, oh gosh, that's difficult to know. I mean, I'm always pleased when people want to wear my things. I mean, basically I'm a textile designer that couldn't find a job. And, <laughs> and so when I left college to try and sell my work, no one would buy it. So I, I then went to Fole and Tuffin, that's even before this book begins, and they liked my prints, so I, organ I began to be a printer of my own fabric and set up a studio with a print table and everything like that. And then um, I had what the Fulham Road clothes shop, in fact, someone here was reminded me they'd even been to the Fulham Road clothes shop. And um, then uh, when that collapsed and Sylvia got offered another job because she'd been working with me, I was then flat on my face and I thought, I hated teaching, by the way, I couldn't bear teaching. So, because I always wanted to do my own work. So I then decided that I was going to put my own collection together. Well, let's go back to, uh, you said you hated teaching. Your mother was a teacher. My mother and, loved teaching, was and, very upset that I didn't like teaching. And she was a teacher in the school you went to, and you kind of she stayed away from her. She was a teacher at the art college that I went to, but I pretended I didn't know her, you know, and I <laughs> went to college, but I thought I'd be a book illustrator. And then, I was taught by this wonderful woman, Barbara Brown, and fell in love with doing printed textiles, which I think is something wonderful. You can print and put pattern on a, a whole dress, and it can influence the shape, and it can make the dress absolutely magical. Mm -hmm. Let's go back, though, to what, what influenced you and how you got to get to all those things and to want to do textiles. Your mom was a, a fitter at the House of Worth. My mother had been a fitter at the House of Worth before she was married, and then um, when I was a child, after the war had ended, she was teaching in the art college, and so there was always lovely fashion books and things going around, and I could wear, I modeled in the dress shows and things like that, but hadn't imagined that I'd go into making clothes. But, you, but that was subliminally in your environment growing up. Yes, so it was so always it just kind there. of yes. And she was in. very exotic, and when it was an open day at school, I'd say, please don't come looking different from all the other mothers. Because <laughs> she'd wear a beautiful hat and lots of makeup and look like no one else there. And the, and the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, though, right? Probably, but I didn't see it that way as a child. <laughs> so clothing was a part of your life growing up. You, attended, you, you also, we know, wanted to be an archaeologist at one point. I loved, I loved all the idea of, of looking at, at all, you know, digging up all the wonderful things, you know, Egyptian and Sumerian thing, and things like that. The most important question. When did you first start to dye your hair? Um, I left the Royal College um, uh, in the 60s, but then a bit later, Vidal Sassoon brought out those lovely green wigs and they always pinched my head and I thought, well, if you can dye a sheep, why can't you dye hair? And I went to Leonard, and um, he started experimenting on my hair, and we'd bleach it in little bits. Well, Leonard was a famous hairdresser in London yes, at the Leonard time. Yes, of, Leonard of London, and he started to bleach it, and I, and I took my own hair dye in, which came out all over the pillows, but we painted bits of green, and I stuck feathers on the end of it in those days. So it was green, and then there was a point where it was... Um, 
pink, red, and blue. It was all different colors. And then, but then you finally settled on the pink. I was, went to China in 1980, um, or 1979, and everyone was in army uniform or in um, the, you know, the navy blue. And I, don't, I came back and designed a Chinese collection. I said to myself, red China and dyed my hair pink. And pink is so easy to keep. You don't ha it doesn't take too much maintenance, so that's it. So that's good to know. The pink hair doesn't take much maintenance. Mm, not much maintenance. Is there a Pantone pink color that you... I have got a Pantone number that I keep in front of my diary for when they ask what color Pantone I have to quote, but I can't remember what it is now. So you told us your first jobs out of college. You started designing the Fulham Road Clothes Shop. Um, how did you decide, though, after that shop closed, that you wanted to open up your own business? How old were you then? Um, I left, I was 20, 23 when I left college, and then I'd got to, I was 28, and I'd done stuff for Fole and Tuffin, and then I'd worked with Sylvia Ayton with, with our own collection, but she right. got offered a job and I didn't, and then I thought, well, I'm not gonna teach. My mother had just died, and I think I had about 400 pounds, which is about what now it would have been about $600 mm -hmm. maybe. And I thought, that's it. I'm not going to teach. I'm going to put a collection together. And I put a collection together and I designed the prints, which were all very big prints. And I had a wonderful friend who was originally a librarian who went to the Royal College. And I said, would you show me how to make patterns? And everyone in those days used to say, if you're a textile designer, you can't be a fashion designer. I thought, well, when I was at Royal College, the people who were in fashion didn't look that much more intelligent than me. <laughs> so I haven't got a choice. I want to use my prints. So um, I did a beautiful circle one that you'll see at the beginning of the book that became the kaftan was all these big circle sleeves and I did dresses that were based on the circle and um, I did a coat that was a huge, um, wonderful felt coat and they were photographed on two um, Ukrainian-American models who were floating around in, in hippie style in London with, by David Bailey. And they kept saying to me, you've got to come to America, you'll make your fortune. But before you, you were connected to America, what were the inspirations for those patterns? Because you have very, very oh. signature, the knot, the squiggles, the well, chevrons. And the, 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 the wiggles I'd always done since I was probably first at school, but then I, I was influenced by wonderful fair isle sweaters, and I did the, the, as if the flowers were all knitted, and so it was called Knitted Circle, and if you look closely, it's all like knitting, and so things are often based on things I've seen that I then develop and, into patterns. And the book of knitting instructions had, had lots had, of diagrams yes, that, had the diagrams that I your, used, yeah. yes. I'd go to the V&A a lot, so I was influenced by things like Elizabethan things. And then, of course, after I came here in 1971, I went to the Museum of the American Indian and did all the prints of, that are based with the, the feathers, as if the feathers are hand-sewn onto the fabric and the crisscross embroidery. And I read Emilia Pucci also was an inspiration at some point. That's actually quite an interesting story because while I was still at the Royal College, this would have been in, in probably 63, Pucci came to London 
And my, the college people said, we think my, I was the top of my class, and they said, we'd like you to meet him. Maybe he'll offer you a job. So I go in with my big folder, and I lay all my designs out, and he very grandly came in and looked at all my designs, and then he said, I suggest you design in black and white. Oh. <laughs> How dare he? <laughs> but it was a, but I mean, he was a big influence in the sense that, you know, he'd started to do wonderful panel prints where the print and the importance of the print was so wonderful. So it was good because it led me on to my own adventures. Did you ever meet him later when you became a success as a designer? No, sadly, but I'd like to have done. So then, yes, your friends told you, time, you should come to America. Come to America. And somebody, who was it, made an introduction for you? The, um, the head of British Vogue did a personal letter to Deanna Vreeland um, of American Vogue. So I had my little letter with me, and I came over with my collection and managed to get an appointment to see her. And I must say, she was the most amazing lady I think I've ever met. Her character was so strong that when you left the room, you felt you'd been bowled over, but you couldn't remember what she even looked like. And um, she loved the things, and she immediately organized a photo session with um, uh, Natalie, Natalie Wood. Natalie Wood. And did a whole double page spread, or maybe it was four pages, I can't remember. And then picked up the phone and organized for me to go and see Geraldine Stutz at um, Henry, Bendel. Henry Bendel. And also made a phone call to Mika Ertigan and Chessie Rayner, who bought clothes. Oh. So that was very, very nice. That's a nice way to start your business in New York, right? You get an introduction to go see Diana Vreeland first. Was the office all red at the time? Her house was, but I don't remember. The house, not no, the, the office, office so wasn't red, I don't think. And she was but wearing a black turtleneck and probably, but she was. So, and what I loved, she she always had red all round the outside of her face, which was she was just amazing woman. You'd you'd feel that you'd been run over by a steamroller, but she was amazing. And which which were the dresses? Do you remember that um, that which she loved that she photographed? She on photographed the yellow felt coat, which is also in, in here. The book and the chiffon caftans um, for that series. And then to meet Geraldine Stutz, who um, I was lucky to be friends with, who uh, was extraordinary and, and still I was one of the best for, stores that ever happened in And New I York. was probably there for about 10 years, probably much more. You had your own little boutique in there, didn't you? A little area. A little area. I had in there, yes. But you had an area. Stephen Burroughs had an area there. Yeah, Ralph Lauren very, at the time very had an area time, there. Very exciting time, which yeah. was wonderful. John Kloss, all sorts of people. That were. Yes, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> but I was, I was so amazed by the whole thing. I don't think I absorbed everything. Oh, God. And that's where there were several women wearing your clothes the other night. And some of them yes, bought that them was wonderful. At, at Bendel's. And at that time, I wore these chiffons, floating chiffons, and high white beaver boots that I had to whiten every day, and a scarf around my head with red lipstick curls, because I still had brown hair. The business started at Bendel's, but then it also very quickly took off at um, Saks, at Sackowitz in, in Houston. And Sackowitz in Houston. And, and Neiman Martha's. Marcus. Martha's in Palm Beach. And Martha's in Palm Beach. Where I did a show with Bill Blass. With Bill Blass. That must have been fun. I did a joint show. It was great fun. He was quite the gentleman, Mr. Blass. Always. Always. 
But then you also years later did a show for Martha's in New York when they had the boutique, and that was at the Pierre Hotel. Um, that was at the Pierre Hotel, and when I was doing an opera, the Pearl Fishers Opera in Pittsburgh, I went to the Andy Warhol Museum, and it was quite wonderful because right upstairs, my, a video of my show was showing, which was gorgeous. And that was um, choreographed by um, Ron Link, who also um, produced um, Divine's plays. Oh, but That's he right. did a very romantic, romantic show. Well, I mean, it's fascinating that your show that you did in New York, you didn't even know that Andy Warhol himself was filming that, and that's why it's in the museum in Pittsburgh. I know, it's wonderful. I didn't know that at the time, and it's a beautiful film. It was the only one showing up there. Mm -hmm. And you were friends with Divine, though, right? Divine and Philip? Divine was a great, great friend, and I used to stay with him in his pent hut. Um, on 58th 68th Street in Madison. 58th, yes, in Madison. Yep, um, I, I knew Divine well, and he's, um, he would be having so much fun in this day and age with he what's happening. He liked dressing up in my clothes when I gave him the chance. And, <laughs> uh, and I will tell you that Divine, um, if you look back, he's in lots of the old John Waters movies. and I mean, he was when just When he wasn't working, he was always in a little um, navy blue Chinese pixie suit, you know, little suit. <laughs> And little navy blue soft flat shoes, you know. He was, he was like a wonderful child to have around. So tell us about some of these people you dressed. Princess Margaret, the Countess of Blondie, Jacqueline Kennedy, Bianca Jagger, um, Freddie Mercury. Um, Freddie. Tell us, but what about working with some of these stars? How did you have, there must be some fun stories with some of them. Well, Freddie, I got a phone call from either Freddie or Brian. And for anyone in this audience that really knows me, knows that I don't really know very much about music. I could tell you what's on national public radio, but not the music. And so I get a phone call and they, I, I sort of say, well, I haven't got to change you because I've got a funny little studio, little climb up attic that they come to. So I said, why don't you come in the evening? So once I put the phone down and made the appointment, I had to ask the people who worked for me, this is 1975, what they played. They had a hit, but it wasn't um, the one, it was early hit. And so they came, uh, they came around in the evening and I picked off different things and the eventual one that you saw in the clip was a satin one, all in pleating, that was originally a bridal top. And I said to Freddie, move around the room and see how you feel and if that's how you want to, to be. And then I made the garment for, garment for him and uh, several garments for Brian. And they gave us tickets to go to the concert. And I went with my great friend, Dougie Field. And we had to be, at, this was in, when Earl's Court still existed, we had to be at least 10 years older than most of the audience. <laughs> and so, um, that was really, I went to the concert and then after that I never saw them again until I ended up signing things in the fans' brochure, you know, after Freddie had died. And how gratifying was it then to get the call for Bohemian Rhapsody, the movie of wonderful. his life? No, that was wonderful that that's the top that people always remember him in. And that was quite wonderful. I mean, that your, your top is so memorable in his life. 
and full circle to come back and be in the movie. I know, it's quite strange, some of the different things that you make and you don't know how much further. Like I have seen some of, um, you know, you see them and you think, oh, that's lovely seeing that as a wonderful memory. What about dressing Jacqueline Kennedy and people like that? Did you the dress her? that you see in the book of Jackie Kennedy, I think she borrowed from Lee Raziwill. Ah. And I think she got them at, um, she bought those in, um, in Bendel's. But in fact, one on Lauren Bacall, Halston sent Lauren Bacall to me in London. Oh, nice. So I fitted her in London. It was terribly embarrassing because she trod on a pin and she was going, oh, oh, and I didn't know what to say. But anyway, I made her several things, which was wonderful. For Lauren Bacall. And yes. she paid for them? Yes. Okay. <laughs> That's not her reputation. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Lady Diana. Uh, you were asked, uh, along with several other designers in 1974, to create a gown for the future princess, Lady well, Diana. Well, no... Yes, they said there was going to be a royal wedding. Yes, I suppose we assumed that's what it was going to be. And, of course, that led to the influence of my gold collection, which is all the big swirls and the gold pleats. I don't think that was ever considered. But she, um, she would have looked quite good in it. But yes. instead, it's a picture of Diana Ross. Diana Ross photographed by um, Richard Avedon. Yes, we had to book. plead to get that photograph. Yeah, that's not easy. And and it's in the was in the camp exhibit that at the was Met. In the camp exhibit at the Met, and then I've got another one that's currently on at my exhibition at the Fashion Textile Museum in London, mm -hmm. which is celebrating my fifty years. Well, let's talk about that museum. So you bought a warehouse just outside the outskirts of you know little well, neighborhood of well, London. I've always believed. I believed in my work that I do, and when it became a bit unfashionable, I was still doing things and going around and doing appearances. I did shows all round with Neiman's and Saks, but um, I always saved everything, and I had them all in this warehouse, of which some got flooded, and um, I thought people had sort of forgotten me, and then my great friend Andrew Logan said, look, there's a warehouse going. Why don't you found a museum? You've always wanted to. And I said, what do you think I am? Made of money, but it was in a very unfashionable area. And so it was like being in the A, Bs and Cs in New York. And I was able to sell my house in Notting Hill Gate and buy the building. And um, I realized that it would have to be quite dramatic. So through my, my boyfriend, who'd been the president of the Warner Brothers, I was able to meet... Um, Ricardo Ligoretta, the Mexican architect, who's very colorful, and I thought he'd be perfect. So I got the introduction, and then I flew him over first class on my American mileage tickets <laughs> to London, and I got all the top architects together for a big dinner, and I said, this is a really up-and-coming area, and he said he'd design it for me. And the building looks like her. It's pink and orange. <laughs> I, you know, I you can surprise. only imagine in grey London, you know, <laughs> seeing a building that is literally pink and orange. It's extraordinary. And now in that building... Well, then they, then they built the Shard. Okay. And of course now it's a very fashionable area, so it works out perfectly. You were ahead of your time. And the, the, you live there, you have studios there, you have archives there. And yes, I have the, the top floor is my penthouse. Um, but um, 
through, through the clever ideas of my boyfriend, because I thought, I've got to convert it now, um, we've made two-thirds of it the museum, and one-third is my workroom with my print table, and then we had another architect who Lee Goretta approved of, and he designed nine apartments on the top with an extra floor, and we pre-sold eight of them that paid for building and converting the building. And then they built the Shard, as I say, and now it's a very fashionable area. And you feature the work of British designers and other designers there, which... Well, we I had Anna Sui's first will, show yes, there. Yes, we're going to just say about that. But, I mean, I don't think there's another designer alive who spends her money creating a museum that will feature other designers' work. One of the reasons originally as well is it, it's a bit... It's not happening as much as it did, but being a textile designer, I felt that textile designers are always the Cinderella's of the business. If they're not actually the designers, you know when you see a wonderful Karl Lagerfeld, beautiful Chanel suit, some invisible weaver created that gorgeous weave that isn't ever acknowledged. So I felt that a lot of textile designers needed to be acknowledged for the work that they did. And that was another reason for the museum. Well, bravo for doing that. And uh, Salah Hassanen, who was your boyfriend and uh, was the president of Warner Brothers and traveled the world opening multiplexes in China and Asia and uh, the Far East and everywhere, which provided a lot of great trips for you as well. So I got on some of those trips and I was lucky enough to be doing shows in Japan at the time. So we were able to time things quite well sometimes. Uh, and when he retired from that and uh, took on a post-production company, he moved to San Diego, which seemed like such a, not a place one would expect you to be living, but you divided your time between London and San Diego. And it, it's been quite wonderful, and I've been beach, able to do things the, there. Yes, the exactly. And that led to the opportunity to get involved with opera. That's it, you know, because I happened to be, end up in cruelly the village of San Diego <laughs> because I'd never met the head of the opera in London at all and so I was asked by the head of the opera um, Ian Campbell have I had I ever done an opera and I, he said would you be interested I said I'd love to do an opera so he he started me on the magic flute where I just did the costumes and and then following on from that um, I was asked to do the sets and costumes for the Pearl Fishers, and that's done 18 towns around America. And then after that, I did Aida with Houston Opera, that then went to London. And you've become an opera fan, who, which you never were before you started doing this. And the, no, I hadn't. And it's quite magical, the combination working in your head of the music and the, and seeing sort of like a a large 18, size 18 lady that you know you can make look like a, a princess and float around and a wonderful vehicle for my prince. I mean, it's just such a riot of pattern and color and spectacular. <laughs> it's, it's been quite fantastic. We need to, to get do. you to do one in New York. So let's see, what else do we want to talk to you about? Um, <laughs> she's a celebrity master chef on TV in London. Are you a good cook? I like to think I am because I invite people to my dinners and they do eat the food. <laughs> um, that's always, that's but always a good sign. Once I'd accepted to do it, 
I went into a sheer panic attack because it's all worked to timing. So apart from the stuff they throw at you to do things, I thought, well, maybe I'll make my, my speciality, which is bread and butter pudding, very English. So I, but then you realize you have to cook it, make it and cook it all in exactly one hour. So I had to do practice at home, cutting and make, I thought it better look artistic. So I was cutting bread into heart shapes and um, <laughs> sprinkling glitter and things on top to make sure I could do it for an hour in an hour. Okay, what are you working on next? What am I working on next? Oh, that's throwing me. Oh, I've got to, an exhibition that's coming out of um, the Pearlfishers and Aida in um, the John Wayne Airport in, um, in Los, it, well, it's between Los Angeles and San Diego. And I arranged to do it before Sala died, so I've still got that commitment to do, apart from new collections, because I'm doing a collection for Ikea. That's this about is, to this come is out. breaking news, a collection for Ikea. I'm looking forward to that. And do some happy socks and things. Do you know what, what it's going to be? No, they want me to work with a whole group of people. They're going to take me back over to their headquarters in Sweden? in Sweden. And they want me with a big group to tell them. But I mean, I hope it's going to be things like rugs and throws. Because I'm a textile designer, so I'd like to be using what... What I'm trained for, really. Yeah, and the linens and all of that. You know, and think of things and I want to live with and hope that other people will want to live with them. Now, I want a Zandra Rhodes rug. <laughs> and we'll, we'll have to line up outside like they did for um, Virgil Abloh when he just launched his collection at Ikea. So we've got to all go line up when, when Zandra's comes out. Um, would you ever do children's clothes? No. I mean, a lot of things... It's if someone came to me and said, that's what I'd really like you to do, and it was the right sort of thing where we could reach enough people, I'd love to do it. I mean, I, I love using things, and particularly as a printer, you could do lots of lovely prints that could look good on children. Um, what, was there anybody out there in the world that you would love to dress that you haven't? Love to I'd see love to dress clothes? Princess Kate. I think it would be lovely. Princess Kate. Uh, anything still on your bucket list, like something crazy that you would still like to do? Oh, gosh. I don't know. I think it might be wonderful to have a shop again, you know. Have a shop again? Yes, you know, because then you've got sort of like the world's got access to you in some way. Or we other. have a lot of empty ones in New York. <laughs> I know. I think there's a lot of empty ones worldwide and we've got to probably rethink ourselves on how we're going to do this. I think we've got to end up with less and we've got to work out how we can enjoy design but not necessarily be wasteful at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a serious problem. It's a very serious problem. I can't make dresses quick enough, so they're not wasteful. Mm -hmm. You know, I hope everyone that has one of mine is going to keep it. Oh, well, how could you ever get rid of something you've made? <laughs> and uh, making it sustainable is very much a big project here at FIT. Uh, sustainability is a I big part of the a, curriculum here. Yes, I, so it, we, we're definitely really and truly, like you're saying about shops and, and everything. I mean, the main thing is, as dis, when advice for young people is, if you want to be a designer, I think you've got to be very determined and don't give up and don't let people put you off. But 
I don't know that it's got to be mass design. We've got to work out a way around everything. What advice would you give a young designer who loves textiles? Find some way to produce those textiles. It's slightly easier in one sense because when I started, they had to be screen printed. Whereas now you can do this that sort of thing digitally and, and sort of see what you can do and what can happen. I mean, what I perfected was screen prints that then controlled the shape of the design, which was revolutionary for the late 60s, early 70s. Sandra, thank you for being here and for doing this and continuing to make fabulous things and look so wonderful. And